You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, how are we doing this morning? Good? Yes? Exciting? Excited? I love it. 11 o'clock. It's the wake group. I love it. Well, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan Hutchins, typically not the person that you would see on a Sunday morning, and uh, typically when I preach, I do a different passage or topic than what we're currently in. However, today, we're going to keep trucking our way through the Gospel of Mark. So Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to be, and uh, with that, before we get into um, the Gospel of Mark in this particular passage, I'm going to ask you this question. Is Jesus Lord? The answer is, the question is not designed to ask, is he literally and actually Lord? Because the answer to that is yes. He is literally and actually Lord, of which all power, dominion, right, and rule belong to him. He's supreme over everything, sitting on a throne, in charge and in control, Lord of the universe right now, Jesus Christ That's not the point of the question. The point of the question is, is he Lord to you right now? Like in your being, inside of you, cut you open, look into the core of who you are. Is Jesus Christ, the Lordship of Christ, a real thing to you? Is he functionally Lord of your life? Now I ask you that question because we're in a passage this morning where this is kind of what the people are grappling with. Is this man, Jesus Christ, Lord, is he Lord to me? Is he Lord in my life? And so with that, we're going to look at Mark 6. Let me just recap Mark 4 and 5, uh, because this plays right into Mark chapter 6. So Jesus in Mark 4 and 5 just got done doing a series of really two things, mainly. He was teaching in Mark chapter 4 the parables, and then he also does a string of really cool, miraculous works. And so Jesus, in the beginning of Mark 4, Just got done teaching the parable of the sower and other parables, and he pulls the disciples to the side, and he kind of explains what the parables mean. This was like several weeks ago, and then over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Jesus doing and demonstrating a lot of really miraculous work. So he starts off by calming the sea, a life-threatening, huge, massive sea. Jesus walks out of the boat as calm as anybody else in the midst of chaos and says, peace be still, and just like that, the storm ceases. And then later he goes off and kind of travels, gets in his boat and goes to another town. And he then casts out a lot of demons, powerful, a lot of demons. And then just a little bit after that, he goes and he heals a woman's illness and then raises a girl from the dead. So Jesus just got done doing all of this and he demonstrates in those miracles his authority over the created world by the calming of the sea, the spiritual world, by casting out demons, and the physical world by healing. So he's saying, basically what he's doing, here's what's going on, he is teaching his disciples. He's instructing his disciples. He's showing his disciples, kind of mentoring his disciples, what it's, what it's going to be like for them to minister. So he's been showing the disciples, you know, these miracles and what he can do, and also teaching them parables and such. And he's kind of mentoring them because we're about to get to a transition in the book of Mark 
where Jesus is going to actually send the disciples out two by two to minister themselves. And so, we said earlier in the first service, Jesus is really smart, which is an enormous understatement. That's okay. But he's really smart and he knows I'm mentoring these guys. And before I send them out, I need to teach them and show them what ministry is actually going to be like. So actually, if you look in the next passage that will be in later, um, it's, this, is, was, this was the nature of the disciples' ministry. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They taught and they cast out demons and they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the disciples are going to sort of do the same sorts of ministry things that Jesus has demonstrated in Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5. But the disciples, now let's just, before we get to our passage, just to stop and think for a second. They're probably like, you know what? Ministry is awesome. I'm going to have the power to teach with the authority of Jesus Christ and I'm going to have the power to do miracles like Jesus Christ and cast out demons and heal people's sicknesses. This is an awesome thing and everybody's going to love me. So the disciples are probably thinking, oh man, who does not want to be a part of ministry? I get to heal people. I get to do crazy cool things. I get to teach and people are saved and everyone will love me. Well, obviously that's not the case. And so Jesus, before he sends, right before he sends them out for ministry, he actually has one final lesson for the disciples. He has one final lesson and it's a hard lesson. It's a hard lesson not only for the disciples in their immediate context, but also for us in our context and really anybody who follows Jesus with any sort of sincerity. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this passage. Here's the plan. Here's the game plan. We're going to look at five things in the passage. The first three are warnings to us. The second two are just cool. They're about Jesus. And then after we get through the passage and look at five things, we're going to take one step back and try to answer the question, what is Jesus trying to teach his disciples? And how does this lesson affect us today? And so that's the game plan. Mark 6. Here is the first thing that we see in Mark 6. The first thing that we see is a failure to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's look at it. Verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him, and how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So let me tell you what's going on. Jesus is in his hometown. He's the guest speaker at his home synagogue. And he opens up the scroll, the Torah, and he begins to teach Jesus with more power and authority and anointing than any preacher that's ever done any sort of preaching ever. In fact, I heard, um, I was at seminary a long time ago, and I, I heard a professor even say about another professor that that professor is unmatched in the pulpit. And I would say that is false, because there's only one man who is unmatched in the pulpit, and it's nobody here today, I'll tell you that. It's the Jesus Christ unmatched in the pulpit. 
and he gets all this wisdom and power and authority and preaches with unbelievable amounts of wisdom and power and authority, and the crowd looks at Jesus, and they're astonished, but it's not a really good kind of astonishment because that astonishment, that wow, look at what he's teaching, that look at how wise and powerful he's teaching, look at all this cool things he's teaching and he's doing all this, it actually propels them into a series of questions trying to ascertain to what is the source of this man's wisdom and power. And it ultimately culminates the conclusion of them being offended at Jesus Christ. So if you can imagine, there, Jesus is a guest speaker at his home synagogue. He's got his family over here. He's got his childhood friends over there. And they're looking up at Jesus and they're going, no, this cannot be the Messiah that the Old Testament speaks about. This cannot be the Messiah who's supposed to come down and sort of, you know, they thought that the Messiah was going to destroy the Roman government and give Israel, the marginalized Israel, earthly dominion and power. And now Jesus, little Jesus, from home, from growing up, Jesus, he's saying that he is actually that guy? There's no possible way that Jesus, you know, and Jesus was just an ordinary name in this culture. It was a real common name. and be like, crazy Jim from home thinks he's the Messiah? No, it's just crazy Jim. There's no way. Little Jim, you know, he can't be the Messiah. So I was at a, a couple of weeks ago, I got the privilege and opportunity of speaking at my home church, which I grew up in, which was really cool. This was a really cool day for me because I came to my home church and I saw, this was, this was so cool, there are still Sunday school teachers teaching the same Sunday school class that I went through like 10 years ago, which was so cool. So I came there and I, uh, you know, said hi to a bunch of old friends and, you know, everyone was super appreciative. You know, Dan, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. And, you know, I have to imagine for a second, if I got up at my home church and I said, and I opened up the Bible and my big driving point was, I am in myself the total fulfillment of God's prophecy and revelation. It's like, that just sounds a little bit strange, you know what I'm saying? That would give a little, I'd get some weird looks. Well, this is similar, this is in similar fashion, this is kind of what's going on for Jesus, is they're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, You're, you cannot be the Messiah, so what happens here? They totally miss the lordship of Jesus Christ. They failed to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because let me ask you again, is Jesus Lord? And here's why I ask that question, because late, early, you know, in Matthew chapter 7, there's a really scary passage. This is the warning. This is warning number one, where Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and I'll look at them and say, I don't know you. And here's why that's, an, that's just an unbelievable, surreal, you know, sort of thing. Because Jesus has the unique ability and the capacity to look past what we say and actually look into our heart and what we really feel and believe. And in a Christian culture, this is a warning for us because this is America. And this is a suburb of Dallas. And this is a very normal thing to, to ascribe lordship to Jesus. But the important thing and the warning is Jesus, just remember that he has the unique ability, wisdom, power, and authority to look beyond the surface of jargon and actions and Christian morality and see who or what is actually Lord in your life. And the people here just miss the lordship of Jesus Christ. And here's the reality, the firm reality, is one day we will all submit to Jesus as Lord. That day is coming for every single human being. 
the choice is, the, 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 the call on our life is, will we submit now, present day, to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Because there's going to come a day where Jesus reveals himself, church, and it's going to be as he actually is. And on that day, the only viable, realistic response to Jesus in that day will be to bow our knee to his lordship. And it's not going to be, it's not going to be like Jesus, hey everybody, everyone calm down and quiet down. I need to reveal my lordship so everyone pay attention to me. You know, she's just going to walk out and go, here I am. And in that moment, everyone just in the sheer magnitude of his glory and power and holiness, is gonna ha- there's going to be no other natural response but to physically bow our knee to Christ as Lord. So the question is, is he Lord now? He is Lord, and we will all bow eventually. This is even a concern just for the church in general, because a lot of us, we go to church regularly, and we hear gospel-centered messages at Stonegate, and we praise God. We have, you know, Rob, Pastor Rodney's a great, gifted preacher, glorifying. Really, what you could do is you could spend the rest of your life hearing, 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 and maybe even ascribing and affirming and saying out of your mouth, but my question is, inside of you, in your being, in the innermost parts of your soul, do you feel Christ's lordship? Is he Lord to you? And does that fuel worship to Christ and a following of Christ? Is he Lord? The first thing we see is a failure to recognize the Lordship of Christ. Secondly, there is a failure to recognize the grace of God. This is crazy. Let me explain this. I mean, Jesus here is preaching at his home church. He is God in the flesh came down out of heaven where he was just sitting on a throne, praised and worshiped and glorified all the time. And he actually comes down with the purpose of revealing God to us and creating a a possibility for us to be reconciled to God. And so Jesus comes down from heaven and in the midst of his ministry, he kind of decides to go to Nazareth and be the guest preacher. And Jesus Christ is preaching in this synagogue in Nazareth and they totally miss the grace of God. That is grace, that God would reveal himself, that God would come, that God would minister, that God would proclaim that God would go to Nazareth and actually preach the word to these people and they just over just missed the grace of God. Here's the thing, church. God does not, he's not obligated to reveal himself to anybody. He's not. God is not obligated up in heaven going, I have to go down and do this. He just does it. And just the fact that he comes down and goes to Nazareth and gets up and guest speaks at the synagogue, that's all grace from God to reveal himself to people. And what the people do, now here's the danger, is they fail to recognize the grace of God. And here was the subsequent conclusion. It affected them on a heart level. It affected them. They didn't just, it wasn't like, oh, I don't recognize the grace of God, I just go on my way. It was, I don't recognize the grace of God, and then I'm cynical, and before you know it, they're unbelieving, hardened in the heart. You see that? And that's sort of, like we see just kind of a process here, that applies universally to humans and to Christians today, that failure to recognize the grace of God can lead to very dangerous heart issues. That's the second warning. This is the second warning for us, is when we don't recognize the grace of God in our life, that can lead to bitterness, jealousy, 
envy, rivalry, a lack of ability to affirm other people, all of that is a, boil all of that down, and it's a direct result of the failure to recognize God's grace in our life. So you might be asking, well, what is, how is God gracious in our life, Dan? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. Let me answer that for you. There's two generally, I'm going to give some theological categories for how God shows grace to us. The first is called common grace. This means that God gives blessings to people and everybody can experience these blessings regardless of if one is saved or not. So Matthew 5 says that this rain falls on the just and the unjust and the sun rises and sets on the just and the unjust. What he's teaching, the general principle, is that you don't have to be a saved Christian to experience the blessing and benefit of rain, of the sun rising, of a beautiful sunset. Those are all things, listen, God does not owe those things to anybody, but just allows people to experience those blessings. It's the same thing with friends and family and good food and good drink. Those are all common graces that God gives people. Even in Acts 17, get this, in Acts 17, God owns the air. It says that he gives to all mankind life and breath and all things. That even right now, the air that we're breathing in is just a, you don't own that air. And honestly, if we were honest, we don't deserve any common grace. That realistically, we deserve nothing but hell and eternity apart from God. That's it. But God allows us to be involved in this creation and to experience and be the recipients of all the grace. This is common everyday graces. The second thing that God is gracing us, that he gives grace, is what's called saving grace. I mean, there's nothing better in life than knowing God. And God has made it possible for you and I to be reconciled to him, made right with him, and know him, have fellowship with him, and in one, in, at some point we'll actually be out of this world and not eternally separated, but with him forever? That's called saving grace. And when we fail to recognize grace in our life, it puts us on the trajectory to have serious heart issues bitterness, jealousy, envy, rivalry, anger, frustration, all of that is the direct result of just a failure to recognize God's grace. This happened to these people. So much grace is going on. I mean, Jesus, like, you want to look at these Nazareth people and go, Jesus is preaching in your church. I mean, that's like, it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. I mean, I don't know how one could, there's no, like, guest speaker that trumps Jesus Christ in your church. And they just miss the grace. That's warning number two. Let's look at the third thing. The people failed to believe altogether. They failed to recognize the lordship of Christ, failed to recognize God's grace, and they failed to believe in Christ. And as I was studying for this, I came across this really cool quote in a commentary by William Lane. This is what he said about this passage. In spite of what they heard and saw, they... That is, the miraculous works of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. They failed to penetrate the veil of ordinariness which characterized this one who had grown up in the village. 
Jesus was just too ordinary to them, and so he offended them, and, he, and they did not believe. They could, it could not penetrate the veil of ordinariness. This is interesting. The commentator later goes on to note about the American church, which I think is equally interesting, that to some degree, being overly familiar with God and the gospel could actually produce and take away from a lack of worship for God. Like the old proverb, there's a whole saying that said, familiarity leads to unbelief. So this is what's happening to the people. Jesus is just too ordinary. There's no way that Jesus could be the Messiah. There's no way that he could do what he says he's going to do. There's no way he could be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. It's just too ordinary. And here's where I think this touches down to us because, man, this is just a warning. This is just warning number three, is if we're not careful, terms and concepts like idolatry, sin, repentance, things that we hear frequently and often at this church, realities like heaven and hell, even the gospel and the name Jesus Christ can become familiar and create and cause us to not worship I mean, we have at Stonegate, you know, we're not a perfect church, but we've been blessed with a pastor, Rodney, who preaches Christ-centered, gospel-centered messages every week. And we have home groups and books and resources, and we hear the same terms over and over again. And my fear is that terms like heaven and hell and sin and idolatry and even the gospel and even the name Jesus Christ can become just concepts. And they'll lose their weight and the, how they're supposed to really bear weight in our life will just go away. Because being familiar with things like that, overly familiar There's a healthy familiarity that increases worship and love and devotion, but there's an overly familiarity where all of a sudden we just kind of lose our awe. My just consistent, just a warning. I just want to bring to surface this warning that this could happen in the hearts of Christians. We're just overly familiar with deep, heavy concepts. And at the end of the day, the reality is, There is no name above the name Jesus Christ. And that should always produce inside of us some levels of awe, appreciation, worship, with the subsequent life that's surrendered to him. Failure to believe. And that leads nicely into the fourth point that we see in the passage. Jesus' lack of mighty works. Let's look at verse 5. And he could do no mighty work here, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So let me tell you what's going on. I don't want to get too bogged down in this, but there's an unbelievable point in this passage. What I think Jesus, Mark just said, he can't do mighty works in Nazareth. He can't. Jesus is it's, he's not going to perform the miraculous works that he's done in the prior past. Let me tell you what I think is going on. It's not saying that Jesus lacks the power to do those works. It's saying that in this circumstance, Jesus is just choosing not to execute mighty works. And there's a little pattern that we see in the book of Mark, and this is it. 
God chooses to leverage his power where there is faith and belief. God chooses to leverage his power where there is faith and belief present. And so I'll just give you a couple of illustrations. So let's just say, um, you know, like some of you guys, man, you work really high-stress jobs. You've got a lot to do. You've got, you know, let's just pretend you're driving to work and you've got a really, really, really hard week ahead of you, hard day ahead of you. And really what this is saying is we have in that moment the option to believe in God, to trust in God, or to not believe and trust in ourselves and get fearful and get, and get you know, lose our uh, hope and get discouraged and frustrated. This is a really, really important issue. Because Jesus chooses to leverage his power for people who believe in him. I'll just use myself as an example. I mean, this is a great example. It happened just a couple of weeks, about a month ago. Um, like, I walked into my house about a month ago for lunch, very discouraged and frustrated for just some things that were going on. Nothing major. It seemed like it at the time, but nothing major. And I don't know if you know me very well, but I'll just let you into my life just a little bit. When I am frustrated or discouraged, when I have, I, you know, emotional issues in my life, it's very, very easy to spot out. There's no, like, secret, I wonder what Dan is feeling. If I'm mad, you know, it's really easy. If I'm discouraged, it's really easy to pick up on. And so I walk in, and Trisha, you know, she knows me extremely well, and she picks up instantly. There's something going on, something working here, something not right. And um, I walk in discouraged, frustrated, and eat lunch. And over the course of that lunch, I remember her just speaking gospel truth into my life. Speaking gospel truth into my life. And I walked out of that lunch with the situation the exact same, but feeling confident, feeling courageous, not because of me, but because I was believing the gospel. And this is just an illustration of what happens in a lot of our lives. I mean, a lot of us, we live in this perpetual unbelief. Like, take parenting, for example. Y'all, a lot of you are parents in here. You ever felt like you want your kids to progress spiritually quicker than they actually are? Has that ever happened before? Where you're like, I really want my children to grow at this rate, but they're not, and that creates subsequent frustration. And sometimes parenting is just really difficult. Sometimes it's trenches. Sometimes you're in the trenches of parenting, and your kid, you've had a million conversations about what seems like the same issue, and you want to have the same conversation again with your child, and you could walk into that conversation, and you're walking down the hall, and you're like, oh my gosh, I have to have this conversation again. I know what the outcome's going to be. They're not going to buy in. I'm discouraged. I'm frustrated. Let me ask you this. Or you could believe in the gospel that God has given you every everything you need for life and godliness and has supplied you with the exact amount of grace that you need for the situations. And rather than being discouraged and hopeless, you can actually walk in and be confident and courageous that there's a God who's with you, which is in itself unbelievable, and has also supplied you with everything you need for life and godliness for that day. And here's what Jesus is saying in this passage. Here's what we see in this passage, that those who believe in the gospel— that's where God leverages his power. And it's not that the circumstance necessarily changes. It just means that our countenance, our demeanor, it just kind of changes. And what we see is that those who believe in the gospel, you know, it really touches down. You know, you might be like, these people are stupid. I can't believe they don't believe. But really this tension of belief and unbelief is, it touches you every single day, I guarantee it. 
Every single day, you are brought, there's situations where you're tempted to believe, I can't do it, God's not with me, God's not here, I don't have enough resources, I don't know if I can do it, or God is with me, and in his word, he claims that I have everything I need for life and godliness, and I'm going to believe that. And what this passage teaches is when we believe in the gospel promises of God, that it creates space in our life for the power of God to operate. You see that? Creates space in our life for the power of God to operate. In other words, to say it negatively, an unbelieving heart actually kind of shrinks our heart's capacity to experience the power of God. So just a general principle here that God leverages his power for those that believe in him. So some of you, you walk into temptation every week. Temptation's a great example. You can walk into the same temptation and go, man, I know I failed at this like a million times and I know I can't do it. And I know I'm, so you're discouraged and you're frustrated and you already expect the outcome and you're just believing lies. You're not believing the gospel, you're believing lies. Or you could walk into temptation and go, I know that God is with me. I know that God will not let me be tempted beyond what I can bear. I know that God has provided a way out in this temptation and that opens up the door for the power of God to actually make that happen. But God chooses to use his power in most cases where there's belief and faith in him and in his gospel promises. Do you believe? Do you believe? And fifthly, we see this. Jesus's amazement. Let's look here. And he, Jesus, marveled because of their unbelief. Have you ever asked yourself this question? What makes the Lord Jesus Christ amazed? That's what this word means, marvel, to be amazed. There's all, this word is used a lot in the New Testament, in the Gospels. So it's used a lot to describe people's response to Jesus. Jesus does a great miracle, people marvel. People do, Jesus teaches a great lesson, people marvel. Only twice in the Gospels is Jesus said to marvel, for he himself to see a situation and for he himself to actually marvel over what's going on. And this is one of them. And what is causing Jesus to stand in amazement in this particular passage is this right here, church. These people have every reason to believe in Jesus. They have the Old Testament. They're familiar. They have every likely reason to believe in Jesus, and they don't. They just don't believe. They have every possible reason to believe, yet they do not believe. And Jesus looks at that and goes, you guys are my people. You guys are, know the Old Testament. You guys have heard me preach. You've seen me in person, and you don't believe. You don't believe. It's like at Stonegate, you know, we, we have resources. We have more, in our culture right now, we have more resources. You know, and we're in America right now, and I know we're like moving away from a Christian nation, but the reality is we're still more, we're far more Christian than the average nation. We're not persecuted, hostile right now. Christianity in Dallas is still very normal. It's like we have every reason to believe in Christ. We have every means to believe in God. We have resources to help us understand. We have people and churches that exist and home groups that exist. We have reasons to believe. Do we believe? So I want to show you the other place where Jesus marvels. So if you've got a Bible, head over to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, we're in Capernaum now. This is a lot different than Nazareth. Nazareth is like a hick town, country town, about 500 people. Capernaum is like a resort town, real 
flourishing, affluent society in Rome who owns everything really in the world right now, they actually have soldiers there to help make sure that it stays in affluent society. And so we're in Capernaum right now, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, when he, that's Jesus, entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly, verse 7. And he said, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he does. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he, same word, marveled and said to those who followed him, you can read the rest later. I need to read that part. Jesus marveled at this man. Let me tell you why. This man is a Roman centurion. He is powerful. He's not an Israelite. He's not a Jew. And in Luke's account, we learn some interesting, interesting things about this Roman centurion. Hang with me for just for one second. This is really cool. This Roman centurion, he actually loved the Jewish nation, which is very unusual. We learn that in Luke's account. And he actually built the Jews a synagogue, this Roman centurion. That's unheard of. He's done a lot for the Jewish community in Capernaum. And this Roman centurion has a lot of power. And this centurion comes up to Jesus and something crazy has happened where there's his servant has been struck with a paralytic attack. And now this Roman centurion hears that Jesus Christ himself is in Capernaum. So he goes and finds him and he says, Lord, come heal my servant. And that causes Jesus to marvel at him. Why? Three reasons. Number one is we see that the centurion feels unworthy, which is, I mean, this guy would make a great church guy. He has done so much for the Israelites. He loves the Jewish people. He has built them a synagogue. So he could come up to Jesus like this. Hey, Jesus, I've done a lot. Can you help me out? I think you owe it to me. But he actually says, I'm not even worthy for you, Jesus, to come into my house. There's not this I've done a lot for you, now you do a lot for me, kind of attitude, demeanor. And he's done a lot. He just comes up and says, I know who you are, Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth. I'm not worthy. And this man is powerful. And so the second thing we see is that he recognizes Jesus' authority. He calls him Lord, a Roman centurion. This would never have happened in this culture. We can't even imagine how awesome this is. This man could have lost his job and maybe even his life for calling Jesus Lord. And the reason why is because Roman citizens and everyone called who Lord? Caesar. Caesar was Lord. This is what got the disciples and the Christians later martyred because they would not call Caesar Lord, but only called Jesus Lord. So this Roman centurion walks up and goes, I feel unworthy, and you are Lord. That statement is shocking. Would have just shocked Jesus. But the third thing, which is equally interesting, is he not only identifies and recognizes Jesus' authority, but he recognizes where Jesus' authority comes from. If you read real slowly, see if you can pick it up. For I too am a man under authority. So this Roman centurion is saying, I'm under authority, Jesus, except the authority that I'm under is the Roman government. And unfortunately, in this particular instance, that authority doesn't matter when it comes to trying to heal my servant. Doesn't matter. 
the Roman government cannot do anything for my dying, suffering servant. I need another kind of authority, and the authority that you're under, namely the authority of heaven and God himself, that's the authority I need. So he recognizes not only that Jesus has authority, but that Jesus, he's not, he's not from another government, and he's not from another country. He is a citizen the Son of God, of the kingdom of God. And that's the kind of authority, power, that this man really needs. And so Jesus looks at that and goes, wow, I'm amazed at this man's faith. So there's two things that cause Jesus to marvel. One is when we have every reason to believe, but don't. And two is when it seems like we have no reason to believe, but do. So if you can imagine, just imagine with me, if Jesus walked out on stage right now and looked at our congregation, Stonegate Church, and you individually, and walked out and said, wow, I'm amazed right now. We'd we'd have to ask ourselves, why would Jesus be amazed? Would it be because it seems like we have every reason to believe, but don't? Or would it be because it seems like they have no reason to believe, and they do. Believe, 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 believe. One of the biggest struggles that Christians have, frankly, is the struggle of unbelief. Every day we're faced with believing or not believing. Not, not, not lose your salvation, not conversion belief. I'm talking about practical believing in the promises of God. When life gets really difficult, there's a couple of things happening at Stone. You know, there's a couple of families where things just went really wrong. And in the midst of really wrong seasons where it looks like they have nothing left to believe, they demonstrate legitimate levels of faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. What an encouragement they are to our body. When it looks like that, no, there's just no reason to believe, but even in the midst of those seasons, there's belief. Oh. What would cause Jesus amazement at our church with the individuals at our church? Would it be because we have every reason to believe and don't? Or because even in the midst of crazy things where there seems like there's no reason to believe, we do. I hope we're the latter and not the former. So that's the five things in the passage. So what is the lesson here to close up? The lesson is this. Jesus is rejected. He's rejected. And so he teaches the disciples that ministry is not just you going around preaching, everybody getting saved, and, and then you doing miraculous works, healing people, and you doing miraculous works of casting out demons and everybody loving you. That's not the lesson. Jesus, it's really interesting that this passage is where it is in the book because he teaches the disciples, basically, I just went to my hometown and I got rejected. And what we know about like, you know, my parents were in the first service, they, it, I could preach the worst ser- sermon ever, and my mom, I guarantee you, walk up and go, you did a great job. <laughs> like, no, maybe not, but even your home, I mean, his hometown family goes, I reject you, I oppose you. So Jesus is trying to establish a fundamental principle in the life of those who are following Christ that you will be rejected. So if you play it out for the rest of the book of Mark, here's what happens. The disciples go into their ministry, their immediate context. They do the things that Jesus does, and people reject them. And the mission of God advances simultaneously as disciples are rejected. That's the principle. And then later in the book of Mark, Jesus is not just rejected by 
the town Nazareth, but is actually rejected by the entire nation of Israel. And that rejection led to the crucifixion. See if you can follow. The rejection of Jesus and the crucifixion, that's a big time advancement for the mission of God. Both are happening simultaneously. Rejection of disciples, rejection of Christ, and the mission of God advances. It's in the context of rejection that the mission of God tends to advance. And the crucifixion was big time for us because that's where Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for us so that we could be made right with God and the mission of God could continue to advance through his people. And then the disciples, Jesus rises up from the grave and the disciples are overwhelmed with this sort of excitement and passion and courage because Jesus is Lord and he overcame Satan, sin, and death and he's ascended and now we're going to go and we're going to preach to everybody. And the book of Acts is the story of these two things, them being rejected and the mission of God advancing. So Jesus is trying to teach that rejection is a natural byproduct of following Christ. And I want to give us one one word of comfort, because if, you're serious, if we're honest, we're probably all a little bit cowardly when it comes to all of this. We're afraid of what people think. But here's the, here's the comfort in this passage. This is to close up. What's interesting in this passage, I don't know if you picked up on it, they referred to Jesus as the son of Mary. That would never have happened in this passage. I mean, that was an insult. That was straight up an insult. A very patriarchal society. So when they're out there, like, you're the son of Mary. You don't even have a dad. They would never have said, son of Mary. That was a belittling, sarcastic blow to the gut. And so Jesus is sitting there hearing, you're Jesus, son of Mary. We know what happened to Joseph. We know you were conceived in wedlock. We, Joseph is probably dead right now. And we, you know, we, we know that you're, you don't even have a dad right now. That's how well we know you. But Jesus does have a father. And Jesus knows his father. And his father is not of the world, but is in heaven on a throne. And what Jesus does is he actually experiences the fiercest rejection possible by going onto the cross and actually being rejected by God the Father so that you and I will never have to experience the rejection of God. You follow that? So what that does is it creates inside of us comfort and encouragement. Here's the worst case scenario for following. I mean, if you're in here and you're seriously following Christ right now and you're advancing the gospel and you're, advanced, you're playing your role, whatever God has placed on you, whatever he's called you to do, if you're advancing the gospel, the reality is you will be rejected. But here's the worst case scenario is one day we'll die and we'll never have to face the rejection of God because Christ absorbed God's rejection for us. So we don't have to reject, we don't have to, be afraid of the fiercest forms of rejection, which is being rejected by God himself. Nobody wants to do that. And the other thing that's comforting is Jesus recognizes his sonship. Like as you go through, I mean, Jesus recognized, he absorbed rejection like nobody else did before, and he knew his sonship in the kingdom of God as a son of God. He knew who he belonged to, and that actually gave him the courage to go through with all of the things that he went through, the rejection, the offended, the people that offended him and didn't like him. And it's because he knew he didn't belong to this world. He knew whose he was. So if you're in here and you're serious about being a disciple, know this, that you'll be rejected by people, but you will never be rejected by God because Christ was rejected by God for you. Isn't that crazy? It's unbelievable. It's just the gospel right here in, Math, in Mark chapter six. Unbelievable. So let me pray for us. We'll be done. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas.
For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.